This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hi, this is Jason Chaffetz. Thanks for joining us on the Jason in the House podcast. Uh, we're going to have a good conversation today. We're going to phone a friend. We're going to call Ben Dominich. That's going to be, uh, he's the co-founder and uh, and publisher of The Federalist. You've seen him as a contributor with Fox News. And uh, uh, not only does he have that deep, dark, you know, that deep voice that's, uh, he has, he's got this great name, right? Ben Dominich just sounds so dominating. Um, we're going to have a good conversation with him, I'm sure. But I've also, uh, want to dive in a little bit to the news and then bring on the stupid because, you know, there's always somebody doing something stupid somewhere, but I want to talk uh, about two things if I could that are in the news and there's a lot happening in the news right now, but I wrote an article, an op-ed, if you will, for foxnews.com and it's called, uh, weaponized Justice Department's double standard. One rule of law for Dems, another for GOP. And I feel very strongly about this. And it, it really comes about because there was an indictment of Steve Bannon. Uh, Steve Bannon there with the January 6th uh, commission. Uh, first of all, any sense of reasonableness uh, coming out of that January 6th commission. When Nancy Pelosi changed the rules so that she could have total partisan control in her sole determination as to who's actually on the committee. I mean, the the legitimacy, the legitimacy I think, kind of went right out the door. I think people understand that this is such a partisan effort. Um, anyway, above and beyond that, what I'm concerned about are congressional subpoenas. Now, I, I have all long argued, and I still argue, that congressional subpoenas are not optional. I, I, I just think, I want to be really clear about that. But subpoenas are only good as the enforcement of those subpoenas. And when I was the chairman of the Oversight Committee, I actually had unilateral authority to issue subpoenas under the House rules. And it had been that way with Democrats and Republicans. Um, there was a lot of precedence for this. But when you issue a subpoena and you don't get compliance, then what do you do? Well, unfortunately, a few decades ago, there was a change in the rules, uh, the way these were administered, the law, if you will, where the House used to administer these themselves. This goes back to a uh, famous case with none other than Sam Houston and, and Francis Scott Key as the attorney. Uh, yes, the Francis Scott Key and the Sam Houston. Um, and then fast forward in more recent decades, and I won't go through the long history of this, but rather than the House enforcing it, they left it up to the executive branch, which was a really bad move. Because then, for instance, I'm a Republican. I was the chairman of the Oversight Committee. We were duly issuing subpoenas but got non-compliance. And so I was forced to go to the attorney general, Loretta Lynch at the time under the Obama Biden administration to get them to enforce that subpoena. Um, and we had a case with a guy named Brian Pagliano. Now, Brian Pagliano uh, was the IT specialist working for Hillary Clinton, worked for her at the State Department. When she left the State Department, he left the State Department. When she started her campaign, he started to work on the campaign. And it was interesting because I won't go through the whole Hillary Clinton email scandal, but right at the heart of this, Brian Pagliano was the IT specialist and was very close and had great close proximity to this situation. Well, I had wanted to, and our committee had wanted to look at the emails when he was at the State Department. Now, mysteriously, the State Department, over a long period of time, produced no documents regarding Brian Pagliano and finally eventually claimed that Brian Pagliano, working at the State Department in IT, in information technology, had never 
sent nor ever received an email at the State Department. Are you kidding me? I mean, we were supposed to swallow and believe that. Anyway, going through the case, Director Comey and the FBI uh, working with DOJ had sought and given Brian Pagliano immunity. The guy was not going to be prosecuted. Now, normally, when you give somebody immunity, you trade it for something. Cooperation with those that are looking at the matter. Mysteriously. Seasoned prosecutors had looked at this stuff for years and years and years and spent decades on their careers working on this stuff, had never, ever seen an immunity agreement with no requirement to cooperate with the government. That's a whole nother subject. But he has immunity, um, and we duly issue a subpoena for him to come appear before the committee. Now, once he appears before the committee, he can plead the fifth. You, You can do that. But you have to come to the committee. You can't just say, well, I'm going to plead the fifth. And then everybody says, oh, okay, guess not. I mean, our whole justice system would fall apart if that was the case. So we issue a subpoena, and he ignores it. We have a hearing. doesn't show up. So in order to get his attention and make sure there was no ambiguity, I had the U.S. Marshals serve him the second subpoena to comply, uh, to compel uh, testimony and to compel him to appear before the committee. And he didn't show up. So our committee voted and down strict party lines. Keep in mind, Democrats had no desire to compel somebody to uh, come testify before Congress. That, That was too much. So straight party line vote. We held them in contempt. We issue that to the Department of Justice through Loretta Lynch. They do nothing. Then Jeff Sessions comes on board as the Attorney General of President Trump. Guess what? He did nothing. That's a whole nother subject. But now, suddenly, it's all about Donald Trump and Steve Bannon. So, of course, Congress, strict party lines. Democrats decide, oh, yeah. Now, there were some exceptions. There were some exceptions. But they issue a subpoena, noncompliance. Within a few days, they hold them in contempt. And... Within a few days, they refer that and they indict him. Um, The double standard is just so much. Look, here's the problem. When you believe that justice should only be administered on your political opponents, that's where we as a nation go sideways and it's just fundamentally wrong. It either is there or it is not there. But it is fundamentally wrong to suggest that only your political enemies should be on the receiving end of this. Congressional subpoenas should mean something. And if the Congress is going to claim that it is a co-equal branch of government, then it actually needs to stand up for itself and enforce its own subpoenas, not give it over to the administration and allow their political whims to determine whether or not justice is actually administered. All right, I want to go to another thing that's also in the courts here and give my take on it. Um, And I really refer deeply into this uh, Wall Street Journal uh, op-ed. It's called An Illegal Vaccine Mandate. The Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals just smacked down the Obama uh, to the uh, Biden-Harris administration. I mean, that's as strong of a smackdown. And in fact, Wall Street Journal calls it a smackdown uh, on the vaccine mandate. The administration was trying to use OSHA to get it to enforce its um, rule saying it was an emergency. Of course, it was such an emergency. It took two months for them to consider the rule. Now they want to put it in there. Let, let me read you what Judge Kurt Engelhart wrote for the unanimous, unanimous panel in a withering opinion, according to the Wall Street Journal. The mandate's true purpose is not to enhance workplace safety, but instead to ramp up vaccine uptake by any means necessary. They went on and cited multiple times where, you know what, folks, uh, they, they were using this as a rule, as a workaround. These rules and types of things really should be done at the state level. But as the court explains, they just they spent two months writing the rule, um, and it doesn't have, it's not a true emergency. COVID has been with us for some 20 months um, and OSHA decided to set an arbitrary threshold of an, of employers with 100 workers because they were, quote, will be able to administer and sustain the mandate. It, it's just, 
it was a political effort. It wasn't a true medical emergency. The court smacked it down, and I don't think it's going to go anywhere. Fortunately, you have a court paying attention. And when they come up with a unanimous decision, I think that says a lot. You're listening to Jason in the House. We'll be back with more of my conversation with Ben Dominich right after this. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com. It's time to bring on the stupid because you know what? There's always somebody doing something stupid somewhere. This one, I go to uh, People Magazine, uh, a family in Lima, Peru. Whoops. This uh, Saletto family, according to Reuters, again, in uh, People Magazine, which I read thoroughly always. How do you survive without reading People People Magazine? Anyway, they purchased a new puppy, and the puppy was named Rerun, and they loved this little puppy, and they, they bought it in a little shop in Lima, Peru. But then as this little puppy became a little bit more of a dog, it was... According to People Magazine, playful, friendly, and energetic. Um, but then as the dog got a little older, they started questioning, is this really a dog? Because the veracity of which he was attacking and killing local ducks and chickens was just getting out of control. Its tail started to change, its ears started to change, and its face became a little bit more prominent. Um, and then I think... They figured out that this little dog was actually a fox. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> and, you know, you know that's kind of cute. I don't know if you should call it flat out stupid. They probably got ripped off. It's just a cute little animal. But, whoops, bought a fox instead, <laughs> instead of a dog. And uh, that's why it was probably killing chickens and ducks and neighborhood animals. Anyway, for that cute thing, we're just bringing on the stupid all right, now it's time to phone a friend, and we're going to call Ben Dominich. He's, uh, he's got a great deep voice, but he's also a great voice in the conservative movement, and his probing comments and thoughts and uh, questions, I think, are, are very, very worthy. So let's give a call to Ben Dominich. Ahoy, ahoy, this is Ben. <laughs> ben, hey, this is Jason Chaffetz. Thanks for joining us on the Jason in the House podcast. That's, that's quite the answer to the phone. Uh, well, I'm a fan of C. Montgomery Burns, the Simpsons, uh, you know, uh, uh, sort of a philanthropist, you know, good, do-gooder, you know, when it comes to his engagement with nuclear power. And that's the way that he answers the phone. So it's the way that I and my siblings all answer the phone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, anybody who's a fan of the Simpsons is moving in the right direction. I am still in awe of that production. They have done so many funny things along the way it really i mean they just it's great when they're things things they can't do anymore someone shared just the other day and i had totally forgotten about it uh, a whole sequence in which uh, bart is attempting to avoid his regularly scheduled vaccine shot from dr hibbert and (laughs) it's not exactly the kind of thing that they're uh, going to allow on the airways today (laughs) yeah well Bart's a special character. He he kind of truth be told, I've got we've got a kid in our neighborhood who totally reminds me of Bart Simpson. I'm like, this is <laughs> Bart personified. I love this kid. Um, it just uh, makes me laugh. And and uh, what a great series. Now, so did you grow up like just watching cartoons all day? Is that what your parents did? Just plotted uh, you down and said, hey, watch cartoons, and this is how you're going to grow up. I uh, know uh, we had a a starkly limited uh, TV experience uh my uh, my family kept us to uh, we could max out at an hour on regular days and we had to turn it off by 10 a.m on on saturday morning cartoon day uh and so they forced us to be outside most of the time and uh because i was homeschooled growing up that meant that you had to you know do a lot of things that were nerdy and imagination focused and not exactly uh, you know, uh, in keeping with the trends of the day, you know, you had, you had we had pretty stark limits on uh, video games and uh, movie consumption and all all manner of other things. But my parents would let us read just about anything. So when I was <laughs> when I was ten or eleven years old, I couldn't go and see 
like any movie that wasn't rated G, but I could read Stephen King and my parents didn't care. <laughs> so that was that was a very odd dichotomy uh, growing up. Yeah, you you can read The Shining, but you can't go watch yep. The Shining. And your, your imagination was probably bigger than than what would be on screen. <laughs> yes, though, it's The Shining. It's funny that you bring that up because Shining is a classic example, and I'm sure you have uh, these in your own brain, of a movie that's actually better than the book. Uh, you know, along with like uh, L.A. Confidential and Last right. of the Mohicans and The Prestige, a number of those like uh, movies that basically take a book that seems unadaptable, change it and make it better. And, you know, that's why Stephen King hates The Shining infamously. He hates uh, the Kubrickian version of his story. Uh, in part, I think, out of jealousy, because it's a lot better than the book, because they tried to make the book into like a, a miniseries uh, or something like that. And it isn't anywhere near as good. <laughs> I mean, it's you, you can watch it if you're a, a king addict like I am, but it's not a uh, it's not the kind of thing that it, it basically says Stephen King should stick to writing books <laughs> as opposed to saying how movies should go. <laughs> well, I, I did love the movie. Actually, when you were saying all that, I was thinking of Fletch. Because I was much yes. more of like a Fletch guy than I was like Stephen King. I, I just, I didn't really get into the whole Stephen King thing. But but growing up, I got to tell you, I, I had limitations on my television as well because uh, we would get the TV guide. Now, not the real TV guide, like the fancy subscription one. This was the free mm. one that would come in the newspaper. And my dad, first thing he would do on Sunday when he got that the TV guide is he would mark through all the shows that I couldn't watch, which really became my guide to this is what I really want to be watching, you know, <laughs> Three's Company, <laughs> Fantasy Island, The Love Boat. Um, those were the I'm ones not, I wanted I'm not to sure watch. Of the, I'm not sure of the age demo of your of your listeners, but uh, we too had that that in newspaper TV guide that uh that you would use because you didn't have any way of seeing what was on the other channels at the at the other time those were the days um you know you especially i mean we still had tvs i think more than one that had dials on them that you had yeah. to get up in order to change the channel um and uh, the funny thing about it is that you know the one show that my family really was always okay with us watching and consuming because of its family friendly wholesome nature was of course the Cosby show, which is now completely ruined <laughs> in retrospect <laughs> I know, for, for everything that we know about Bill Cosby. But like we grew up listening to like, you know, <laughs> Bill Cosby himself, the album and, and, and all of the, like, you know, Oh, these are, you know, this is wholesome family friendly comedy. And, uh, and, and uh, now it's, it's just, you know, I, I, I try to appreciate it as, as it was, as opposed to uh, the the uh, pudding pop uh, and and roofy salesman that we knew him later to be. <laughs> so yeah, I uh, you know <laughs> I, I'm I'm older than you are, so I got a lot of these kinds of stories uh, in in my in my background. Yeah, and I think that it's sort of like you know you get older and then you start to realize that your teacher was just like some regular you know schmuck who just you know yeah. I, I just like it, but they were so it was my teacher you know and then you get yeah. older and you just think oh my goodness and then some of these television icons or people that were stars you know i it just have you had the experience have you had the experience of being invited back to some kind of academic program that you graduated from where at the time you put the professor on some kind of pedestal and then you realize as you approach middle age that he was younger than you are now and that actually he didn't really know that much about his subject matter <laughs> yeah it's kind I of depressing that happened <laughs> it, it's kind of depressing because i i look back and i think oh, and i look at their picture and i thought I'm older than this guy. I don't look nearly that old, do I? I mean, was it the way they took pictures or dressed? I'm like, come on now. I, that, that picture of a 38-year-old made them look like they were like 79. And now yeah. I'm like, 79 is not looking too bad. <laughs> you know, it's. Uh, I still remember 
the one professor that we had uh, who uh, lost the midterm, he claims when his when his car was robbed while he was uh, at WrestleMania oh. in Virginia Beach, <laughs> and uh, and the idea that this you know bald you know sort of uh, middle aged man who we all thought of as being you know uh, old as old as sin uh, was <laughs> the kind of person who would go to WrestleMania was just a a complete. Uh, mind explosion uh, for me at the time. And now I think about it and it's like, wait a minute, he's like 40 and I would go to WrestleMania. So how does that work? All right. So tell us a little bit more about growing up. So you, um, you were born down in uh, Mississippi, right? But raised in Charleston, South Carolina. Is that, do I have that right? That is, you do have that right. I was born in Jackson, Mississippi. Um, I was born on new year's day. I uh, uh, was not, however, the first baby in uh, in America or in the state. And so uh, but my parents didn't get like a whole, you know, a uh, car load of free diapers or anything like well, that. Well, they missed the tax um, credit by not being born. That, you know, something, on the 31st. something that my father reminded me of with <laughs> regularity as I was uh, growing up uh, in which I now actually appreciate as being the dark humor <laughs> that it is. Um, the, uh, yeah, we moved to Charleston, South Carolina. My parents were both, um, uh, evangelical Christian hippie types and kind of crunchy, you know, uh, granola co-op type people. And, um, but very, I would say traditionally conservative in, in the social sense, uh, and, and in their faith. And we moved to North Charleston, uh, Tim Scott's, uh, uh, territory, yeah. uh, which is, if people have visited Charleston, they probably visited downtown, which is the old Charleston, which is beautiful and which I love. But we lived in North Charleston, which was uh, much more sort of uh, racially even evenly divided and kind of the blue collar people who worked at the port or who were Navy vets, um, that kind of area uh, and uh, lived there for, for many years. Um, and uh, it, while we were there, we lived through a couple of hurricanes and, and uh, my parents started homeschooling uh, me and my uh, sister. And then, um, and my, and then my little brother was born and we moved up to uh, Northern Virginia uh, to rural Virginia in Loudoun County, which is now uh, a County that everybody in America knows about uh, for very weird reasons. Um, When, uh, and that's really where I spent my, my teenage years. And it's, it was at the time that we moved there a pretty rural County, um, lots of lots of agriculture, but it was also becoming a kind of Silicon Valley East. Uh, the MCI WorldCom had moved there. AOL was based there. Uh, Amazon was starting its web services there, uh, and so it, it became kind of a split between uh, new money uh, people who lived in McMansions based on uh, built on old farmland that had been split up. Uh, and then to the western part of the county, the places where the farms were still kind of intact, and it was an, an interesting split. But that's uh, you know it it was kind of an an area that uh, you know uh, has come to uh, be at the center of conversation after being what was essentially a very sleepy uh, political situation. You know, one that was that was very traditional and and rural and and agrarian and mostly just cared about whether the roads would work for people to commute all the way into the city. So, so you're growing up, you, you get kind of this political bent now you're that come from your parents or, I mean, not everybody that's going along in life decides, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to comment on politics in the world that for a lot of people that gets them in trouble or they get, they get tongue tied, (laughs) but what is it about your growing up that said, yeah, you know, I think I can do this. And then later on in life saying, yeah, I can do this for a living. Well, I think from my parents' perspective, they were always interested in politics, but it was kind of a sideline thing for them. Uh, they were involved, but mostly because of, of uh, the abortion issue or religious freedom. Uh, and they still, though, very much liked to be engaged in what was going on in the world. And we would watch the McLaughlin group as a family growing yeah, up and, and we would, and we would talk about it and argue about it and, and pay attention to the, you know, the different things that were going on in the world and, and uh, certainly paid attention to the 92 election and everything like that. Uh, and the, the Gingrich revolution in, in 94 In 93, my father ran uh, the campaign of a upstart 
uh, homeschool advocate named Mike Ferris, who ran for lieutenant governor unsuccessfully in Virginia. But it was really the start of a, a kind of engagement of evangelicals and, and homeschoolers and people like that that was uh, far more active in politics. And obviously, you know, we, we paid attention to that. We paid attention to the uh, 94 thing. I still have the pictures from the 100-day mark of uh, past the contract with America where my family and, and my siblings and a bunch of other kids in our homeschool group all went to the Capitol. Um, and I have pictures with Gingrich and Dick Army and Tom DeLay and John Boehner and people like that uh, from, you know, when I was 12 years old. And, <laughs> That's and like, great. You know, it's, yeah, it's, it's very weird because, you know, now I know Newt as a friend and, and have known him for many years, but it's, it's very odd to look back at that at the time. Uh, and the, the takeaway that we really had was just politics was part of what my family was engaged in, but it wasn't the be all and end all. And it, there wasn't any kind of assumption that, that any of us kids would go into it. Uh, it was more, I would say that just, we would always think it was important. And so as we got older, you know, my parent, my, I wanted to be in the, in the media part of it. I didn't really want to work on the inside so much uh, as, as, work on the, uh, the area of covering it, um, got to, uh, do an internship when I was 15 at human events where I was working for John Gizzy, who's still around working for Newsmax these days. He's the, he's the fellow with the glasses that you see occasionally, if you will mm -hmm. pay attention to the, uh, white house press briefings. And I, um, was, uh, an intern as well at, at national review and my sister, meanwhile, she had wanted to go into uh, the sports arena. She was an athlete and went into uh, studied sports medicine. My brother was always uh, focused on going the military route. Um, and uh, she ended up being, uh, you know, not just a, a very active, you know, sort of policy person in terms of her engagement uh, on the subject and, is, and now works on Capitol Hill, um, but worked for both the Bush and Obama administrations in the Defense Department. Um, and then my brother ended up uh, going the military route. So we all kind of ended up in some branch of either service or or covering uh, government service. And to me, I, I like the media route because, you know, it's the place where I feel like you can have the most fun um, and and actually have the most impact uh, in, in the shift that's happened in the past couple decades, as you know, uh, and as I think you're experiencing yourself, is that. Uh, sometimes it turns out that you can be more powerful or have a more powerful impact from the outside going in uh, than being on the inside or being one of 435 members um, trying to get stuff through. Um, and, and that's something that I think is, is valuable. And, and I've seen both sides of it myself and, and appreciate the different aspects of what goes on with those, both of those pursuits. Um, politics, though, for me, is it's something that's very important. But I also find uh, the humor in it uh, and the uh, need to sort of not take yourself too seriously uh, when it comes uh, to approaching it. Uh, it's, I'm sure, you know, not for nothing, but I'm sure that everyone who has ever heard me says that, you know, would, would have heard me say that the, the most accurate depiction of Washington life is not the West Wing or House of Cards, it's Veep. Um, and it's and it's really is, you know, people people making monumental decisions about policy based on who got which parking space. So. <laughs> <laughs> now, there, there's uh, to your earlier point, I think there's a lot of truth to the uh, I totally buy into the whole Margaret Thatcher approach, which is first you got to win the argument, then you can go out and win the vote. And um, I find a lot of people on the more conservative right side of the aisle are just pathetic in terms of their communication and 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 poor at best in t explaining why they believe what they believe um and so that's in part why really i'm just fascinated i mean such great success in your co-founding and publishing the federalist and um tell me a little bit more about the genesis of that what, what you saw as the need and uh it really is exceptionally well done well, uh, thank you um, for those kind words. Um, in terms of that Thatcher comment, I'm reminded of, I don't know if you're a fan of the uh, the British show, uh, Yes, Minister. 
Um, I can't but say it, that I have. The British break, it, Great British Bake Off, yes, and, and Benny Hill, yeah, I've seen a well, few. Well, look up, look, like look up, look up some YouTube of, of Yes Minister, and I think you'll okay. relate to it. There's a wonderful, there's a wonderful scene. It, the whole thing is about bureaucrats frustrating the the people who are in elected office, and uh, but there's this wonderful scene where the uh, prime minister says. Uh, you know, well, I, I can't make any choice in this area. The conference has decided, you know, I am their leader. I must follow them. <laughs> and so <laughs> I think there's a lot of that that goes on in, uh, in Washington and Congress. But anyway, uh, the, the Federalist is I have um, tried to launch uh, both successfully and unsuccessfully multiple things in my life. Um you know, I was a co-founder of Red State back in the day, which obviously was sort of a key voice during yeah. Tea Party years, uh, though by that point I had already sold it along with, you know, the original founders, Eric Erickson had taken it over and it became, uh, it was meant to be kind of a big tent thing when we started and became more of a uh, like angular Tea Party-esque kind of thing. Uh, in And so that was a success because, you know, whenever you, make something and then you make money off of it, you know, I think you can consider it a success. Uh, then I had a couple of failures, the, you know, sort of websites that I started, didn't get a lot of money or backing for, and they didn't really go anywhere. Um, I got into the think tank space for a bit with the Heartland Institute and Manhattan Institute. Um, but while I was there, I was always kind of thinking that I would do something that, uh, that I wanted to do something that would have a much bigger impact on the world of, of, right of center media. And I felt in the wake of the 2012 election, uh, particularly everything that happened in the primary, but also just the way the election played out in a lot of different ways, that there was a need for some some new blood, some new injection of uh, a an entity that would both report and analyze the news, be laser focused on media bias and what we felt like was uh, a truly organized combination of the of the left and the media working uh, in tandem together, going beyond bias uh, to really be right. uh, propagandistic in a lot of ways. I mean, the idea that uh, I mean, I'm no fan. I'm not a big fan of Mitt Romney. I've always been public about that. But the idea that Mitt Romney and Paul Ryan were going to crawl through your window and steal your birth control in the middle of the night which is basically how they were depicted is was absolutely abhorrent to me. Uh, and so that was something that came out of it. But then also we felt like there was a need for just new voices that could command uh, some direction or come to represent uh, and, and I, a space of ideas uh, that was being lost. And I've always said that uh, the Federalists would not exist if Andrew Breitbart had not sadly passed away um, and Andrew and I were not that close. We were colleagues. We weren't friends, uh, but we, you know, had dinner many times and, and hung out together quite a bit. And I had enormous respect for him. And obviously one of the things that he became known for was preaching the idea that politics is downstream from culture, that culture matters on a level that, that politicians don't particularly appreciate or don't want to appreciate. And I felt like in his absence, while obviously, you know, Breitbart came to be known for a lot of other things, um, that that culture first attitude was being lost and that the old guard of National Review and at the time the Weekly Standard and a number of other places like that really were not engaged in the culture war in the way that I felt that they needed to be and in appreciating the importance of common culture, um, meaning the importance of, of all these different aspects of American life that inform the way that citizens think about things that don't have anything to do with a policy that's in front of a committee. For instance, you know, there is perhaps no more political arena today than the world of sports media. You know, sports media is just shot through with racial politics, transgender politics, you know, uh, Title IX issues and, and women and everything else related to it. And in particular, I would say it has become the source of a number of major American figures who espouse worldviews that I believe are antithetical to what we hope for for an American future. LeBron James being a perfect example of that. <laughs> um, 
And, <laughs> and I say example? that. Yeah, there's so many. Yeah. Of them. <laughs> I mean, there's so many of them, but it's like, here's the most popular basketball star in America. And everything he does seems to be in service either of diminishing uh, America or in uh, or in service of of pursuing dollars in China. And, you know, and that has way more impact than any documentary put together by any foundation or think tank, which a bunch of old people sitting behind desks telling you about how important the American founding is. And so we, we felt the need to uh, uh, create something new. And so Molly Hemingway, David Harsani, Sean Davis, and I put together uh, something in, in the Federalist that launched um, in, in 2013 uh, now. And uh, we, pretty quickly added to our team, built, uh, you know, a number of, of younger voices into it. And one of the things that we particularly made an aspect of what we were trying to do was to get younger women uh, involved in key positions uh, from, uh, from the beginning. And that was not so much out of any kind of affirmative action attempt, but more from my perspective that they were, it, it was long past time that we had uh, mastheads uh, that actually resembled the people who are most important in terms of directing American culture and the mastheads of places that are within the the right of center media landscape frequently had, you know, uh, you know, either all male or or older or just not, you know, really connected with so many cultural issues that I think are so important, like education and child rearing and, and relationships uh, and everything else that goes into that. Um, and so, you know, here we are eight years later and we've got a, an editorial team that's entirely female and we've got, you know, a number of great young uh, writers uh, who, you know, I think are are prominent and, and known to a lot of the Fox audiences by now um, and have, you know, differences of opinion, but are very, what they have in common is that they have strong views and that they're willing to defend them uh, and that they don't back down in the face of, of media mobs and the like. And that's become kind of a hallmark of what we do. And I'm proud of it. You're listening to Jason in the house. We'll be back with more of my conversation with Ben Dominich right after this. Well, tell me a little bit about the suppression, because I got to tell you, if you go to certain search engines and try to type in something, it's, it's almost rare to have the Federalist pop up, even when you're searching mm -hmm. something from the Federalists. And mm -hmm. do you feel that? Do you, do you experience that? To, and to what degree? And how pervasive is that? It's absolutely pervasive. And I'm glad that you've noticed that. Um, this is not something that was true, I would say, even a year and a half, two years ago. Uh, but it's something that became true during the course of the last election uh, in a really big way. Uh, and certainly during our coverage of COVID and the mandates and everything associated with that, though I would say that that part of it was we were pretty aggressive on the the point where things really started to be noticeable was that we were pretty aggressive in calling for the investigation of the lab leak thesis from the beginning, right. um, and uh, you know, uh, along with Rand Paul and a couple of others who were espousing that that was something that we really leaned into. We didn't even experience it. I would say the year before that, uh, when we were, you know, and in the previous years, when we were obviously uh, very engaged on uh, the Russia hoax and everything related to that, uh, or, you know, even on other major media stories, such as the Kavanaugh nomination fight and things along those lines, it was really when we started to mess with the, the, the idea that, Hey, this is, this doesn't necessarily, we shouldn't assume that this came from a wet market. We shouldn't assume that this is something that, you know, is, is not coming out of a lab. We need to have more investigation. That was the point where we started to get some real tech backlash. And uh, because, uh, you know, a lot of them were identifying it as being racist. And that was even before a lot of right-wing sites took serious hits in the summer during George Floyd, that we sort of started to get it earlier. We got it in like April and May. And uh, the, the experience that we've basically had is that, most of these tech giants, they don't actually want to have a public story about anything. So instead, what they try to do is essentially shadow ban you um, to diminish uh, your sharing, to turn the knobs and, and flip the switches that basically uh, prevent things that would have gone viral from going viral um, and to particularly slow down the, the sharing of, of 
content uh, from channels that they deem to be uh, ones that they just dislike. I mean, a perfect example of that for us, we actually, we do pretty well still on, on Facebook because we, we never spent money on Facebook to like gin up our numbers. Right. We just were always organic places that spent money were the ones that were hardest hit there. But the example that I would use for us is, is our YouTube channel, which is so shadow banned that I can search for videos of myself and not find them. You know, <laughs> And uh, it's, it's a very surreal you know, experience like, did I actually do that Fox hit if I look for it and it's not on there, <laughs> you know, kind of a yeah. thing. Um, but it's true. And it's and it's it's absolutely uh, it's it's absolutely clear as day if you pay any attention to it. And, you know, the unfortunate part of this and I and I'm curious if I can turn around and ask you a question about this. I'm curious if you've found or been convinced by anybody as to a solution on this. I was I. I, my own feeling is we don't we shouldn't treat these companies like they are uh, good faith actors anymore. We can't assume that what they're saying to us is honest. We can't assume that the products that they're offering are not deeply compromised or that they are not violating their own terms or playing Calvin ball with the you know the different rules. Um, and in in because of that, we should, do everything that we can to eradicate the type of corporate welfare that they enjoy, whether in terms of, you know, protection from lawsuits in different areas or, or, or the like, but I'm not convinced that there's any particular silver bullet here that results in the kind of better behavior that I think we'd all like to see from these companies. It's not, you know, it's not that I think that these, you know, a company is not one person. It's not like they are, you know, that Facebook is everything that Mark Zuckerberg wants it to be. Um, you know, though I think the metaverse might end up being that way. He does play right, a lot of right, civilization. Yeah. A little scary, um, yeah. But, yeah. Yeah. But, but it's, but it's one of these things where I don't think that we can count on them to be good actors, but I also don't know that there's a policy solution. Um, and, and so that's why I think that, you know, this whole thing is sliding more toward breakup and, uh, and antitrust versus, uh, bureaucratic regulation, uh, both of which are solutions that, you know, are not ideal um, yeah, for, I, for a lot of host of different reasons. Yeah. I, 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 I fear more bureaucratic regulation. I don't think you want the government involved in making these types of decisions. I think ultimately that makes it worse, not better. I I've always taken the the position that um, Section 230, while there's a couple things I would I would work on on tweaking, I kind of like the wild wild west, the openness and the the errors towards more um, freedom of of expression. But with that said, I think that where there is vulnerability for these social media companies is I believe that they're engaged in deceptive trade practices. And I've never mm. understood why organizations like the Federal Trade Commission or some of those types of organizations, whether it be at the state or the federal level, isn't going after them. If, if you, for instance, on Twitter, say that I like this person, I like Ben Dominich, I want to follow him, I, I do not, and, and it puts this little enticement on there to, to say, you know what, you're going to trade, you're going to give as your consideration, you're going to allow us to gather information about you, what you see, what you watch, what you click on, what you don't click on, and they're going to monetize and sell that. But in return, you get to follow these people, you get to like these people, and in turn, they can follow and like you, and they get to see your material. That's just fundamentally not true. And I, I mm -hmm. think you can... You can prove that that's not true. And Mary, yeah. maybe buried in some term and condition, they've got some, hey, our algorithm makes these decisions, but I think they're engaged in deceptive trade practices, and I wish they would mm -hmm. go after that. The other policy thing that I think should be reexamined is I like actually in part what Europe is doing, which is the right to be forgotten. If you mm -hmm. decide that, hey, I no longer want to use Google search engine what happens to all that data on all that information? They should have to destroy that. They should have to give that mm -hmm. back to me. And I should have the ability to limit what they get and gather on my information. That, I think, is empowering to the consumer and changes the dynamic of what they're doing. Because 
just like they did with um, uh, getting loans, they have to very clearly document, this is the interest rate you're going to pay. This is how much you're going to pay in interest. There should be the same type of thing uh, when you engage in a social media company. And I think we really need to think back through allowing 13-year-olds to enter into these contracts um, as if they were an adult. And mm -hmm. do they get to be forgotten if they decide to change their mind when they turn 18 or if they're how 75 many, years old, for, for example? How, how many kids do you have? We have three. Mm -hmm. And are they uh, are they old enough? Are they teenagers? Or are they? Uh, oh yeah, my our youngest uh, is twenty, and so our oldest son is like a ghost. He doesn't he he got off that a long time ago. I'm so proud of him for making those that's decisions. Smart. But our I, younger I, ones I, involved yeah. and engaged in it. Yeah. Well, I so it's it's weird because I'm from this elder millennial generation. That's the last one that didn't have you know their brains rewired at a very young <laughs> age. Right. Uh, from these things and the difference between me and my youngest sister, uh, who's quite a bit younger because my parents adopted her later, you know, in, uh, as after, uh, the, the sort of, we had grown up a little bit and, and she's just completely different in her interaction with social media than I am. And then, uh, my older sister is, and I was talking the other night with a friend of mine, a longtime friend of mine. And he said, I, I was saying, you know, I'm, I'm so worried about this. My own daughter's one year old. You know, I'm, I'm worried about what things are, you know, things like look like this now, if they look so right, terrible right. now, what are they going to be like when she's a teenager? And he said, well, don't, don't be as scared of this as you think, because I just did a test uh, and, uh, and it worked out really well. I paid my kids and he's got a, I can't remember, I guess six or seven kids. Um, he, uh, he said, I paid my kids to get off of social media. And they're all, all but one of them is a teenager. And, uh, and he, he said, what would it cost to keep you off of social? I want to buy your social media for the next two months. <laughs> and so he paid all of his kids a thousand dollars to stay off. To say, I was like, oh, I'm like, kidding. I, that's a lot. And he said, well, they were, they were hard edge negotiators. <laughs> so, so for them he, to stay off, to stay off for two months. And he said that, only one of them has gone back to it and that they all basically reported being less stressed and more yeah. engaged and more able to focus and less distracted. And so I think, I think part of this is as much as we might worry, as much as someone like me might worry or, or, uh, or parents today might worry. I think it's a situation where this is so new. It's, it's only been around for a very short period of human history and we just have to learn how to deal with it and navigate around it in a way that's responsible as opposed to having it be this, you know, unending machine, just this, this spout of water uh, that's going into you every day, all day long. It's the first thing that you look at in the morning and the last thing you look at at night. Uh, that's, that's what we have to get away from. And I think that we're going to have to take steps intentionally to do that for ourselves and for our kids yeah the, the this is a fascinating topic and I, I i'm glad you're thinking it through and other smart people are thinking it through because i do think it has to be it does have to be dealt with particularly the suppression i, I think the suppression mm -hmm. is just fundamentally wrong it's disingenuous and i think it's counter to the the contract that i enter into in the trading of information and that as the vehicle when I want to search and find things and that they purposely for their own personal political whims decide that they're going to have this unequal application of how they do that suppression. That, that to me, I don't think would be tolerated by the left. It was coming the other way. They would mm -hmm. throw labels on it like racist and all these other things. But as long as it's against conservatives and Republicans, it's just fine. It's just fine because it's all about <laughs> truth. Well, and, and uh, that's and that's that's part of the thing that I think is is underlying so much of this is this assumption you go from uh, making uh, a a piece of technology that's designed to you know <laughs> quote unquote make the world a better place, and then suddenly when people start using it in ways that you don't approve of, you feel the need to to mess with it to game the system. It's like they're they're liking the wrong people. They're listening to the wrong podcast. You know, they're, they're, yeah. I mean, there were questions thrown 
I'm a fan of the of the Washington Redskins, which is now known as the Washington football team, the most significant, the most significant, perhaps ramification of of the summer of of, uh, riotousness is that a freaking football team has to change their name. (laughs) But but uh, they their current quarterback, who is, uh, you know, was a backup who had to uh, play because of injury. Uh, yesterday was doing his his press conference and there was all sorts of controversy because he showed up wearing a joe rogan hoodie and (laughs) and immediately he had to answer questions about his vaccination status things like that he's like what are you talking about i'm vaccinated or whatever and he's like oh oh i wore the hoodie (laughs) but it's like we we really are reaching a point where the the people you pay attention to are you know, indicative of where you are on the spectrum. And that's something that's what's so interesting about uh, the dynamics in media today. And I'm sure you pay attention to this is if you, uh, the left spent so many years, uh, especially during the Trump era, but even before that, you know, targeting Fox and targeting other, you know, center right media publications and saying, well, you're siloing people off. You're telling them, you know, a message that's that's different, you know, from from the rest of society or something like that. And you even had these ludicrous. I mean, one of the even one of the Mueller, you know, indictment uh, series during the that investigation was mostly directed at a bunch of Russians who uh, certainly they meant to interfere with the American election. But they did so primarily by creating ridiculous memes, including that meme of Jesus Christ endorsing Donald Trump. And I would love to find one person in America who actually, you know, voted for Donald Trump because Jesus endorsed him. You know, but the, but the, but the, (laughs) something they learned from a Facebook meme. But the thing that is, is so fascinating is it's the left. It's the dominant force of the the media and the people who drive progressive policy they're the ones in the silo they're they're not looking to the log in their own eye because if they wanted to find out what conservatives in america believed or what just right-leaning independents or just traditionally minded people believed in america even vaguely apolitical they would have to put effort into it they would have to watch the shows that they're not watching or listen to the things that they're not listening to. Whereas I get up in the morning and I know what the left thinks because yeah. everything else in the media tells me. The front page of the New York Times tells me. NPR tells me. The the dominant uh, forces in media tell me. And so it's no mystery what they think. I know that they think that everybody who voted for either Glenn Youngkin or his black female uh, lieutenant governor or his Hispanic attorney general <laughs> running mates. Um, I know that they think that if you did that, that you're a racist, you know, even though, of course, voting for the uh, white incumbent attorney general would have literally been voting for a guy who admitted to wearing blackface. But let's that set that aside. <laughs> the, the point just being like, I know that I know that because everyone in media is telling me that. Uh, and it's it's the other people. It's the people who are on the left who actually would have to do the due diligence of seeking out the alternate view. Uh, and very few of them actually do it, in my experience. Yeah, I think the big irony in this whole thing is those who preach the most tolerance are probably some of the most least tolerant people that I've ever come across. <laughs> it's It really is stunning that they, they are just fine suppressing things as long as you agree with them. Heaven forbid somebody have a different idea or different perspective because that would be intolerant. And anyway, I Ben, I could talk to you all day about this stuff. I think that's why people go to the Federalist. They they listen and see you on Fox and your your podcast uh, right here on the Fox News podcast list. But I'm fascinated by what you've done and, and how you're doing it. Uh, but I need to ask you a couple quick questions just to get sure. a little further insight into Ben Dominich. By the way, you've got like this incredibly powerful name, like Ben Dominich. Like, <laughs> well, that's, that, nobody's ever said that out loud with, starting with the word Jason. It's just like it just doesn't happen to me. So, well, thank you. I, I appreciate it. <laughs> so, yes, it, 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 there was a compliment buried in there. And, and so I'm going to ask you these rapid questions, and then um, we'll see how you fare. All right. Okay. First concert you attended. Uh, the, the first concert that I attended that I bought the ticket for, uh, was the wallflowers counting crows tour in 1996, I believe. 
Um, and they are also the Wallflowers are the most recent band that I saw because they performed a couple of nights ago. I saw them. There you go. Like it's going full circle. Years. All right. Anyway. What was your high school mascot? Uh, so I was, I was homeschooled, but I technically, we use the university of Nebraska curriculum. So I guess a corn husker. <laughs> corn husker. All right. All right. Who was your first celebrity crush when you're a little kid? First celebrity crush. Oh my gosh, this is the easiest one to answer. Jennifer Connelly uh, from The Rocketeer, who I ran into once in New York uh, as as a thirty something man, and and was just sort of completely overcome and didn't know what to say. <laughs> and, and my girlfriend <laughs> at the time had to had to sort of elbow me and like, what what's wrong? And it was like that was that was Jennifer Connelly. I, she's still real. <laughs> <laughs> I know her, but she doesn't know me. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, life's most embarrassing moment. Oh my gosh. Uh, that, that's a great question. I have a number of embarrassing moments. Um, I, I think, I think probably, uh, one of the, (laughs) one of the, one of the more embarrassing uh, moments that I, uh, that I've ever had is that I, I mean, it's actually, it's basically how, how I, uh, how I met my wife, which is that I went on Bill Maher on HBO um, and, uh, and it was coming off of like a bad breakup, you know, relationship uh, and uh, went on vacation to uh, the the friend offered me uh, access to his house in the Virgin Islands. So I was on vacation uh, by myself uh, and, and I, you know, am, you know, in my cups and sort of, you know, feeling depressed. Uh, and my wife, uh, my then, uh, who, who, who's the Senator McCain's daughter, Megan, uh, follows me suddenly out of the blue on Twitter. And uh, before I know it, I am basically, I've gotten her phone number and I'm calling her out of the blue. And, uh, and you know, we've basically just go from zero to 10 in, in just a, like, in hour in the space of hours in terms of asking her out and <laughs> and she just thought i was being very forward by by doing so but what i was confident that because we you were be great because i was but <laughs> i think fortune favors the bold but <laughs> to her credit to her credit i uh uh she she was like okay you know you're super forward and she later admitted to me she was like i just was being polite to you you know to, to go out on this date i didn't think that it would lead to anything uh, and and lo and behold, uh, cut to uh, you know a couple of years later, and we get married, and now we have a daughter. And so, but it was it was embarrassing at the time because it was just like you don't know me at all, and I, and I don't typically I'm not very much that that kind of person when it comes to asking somebody out. Uh, and so I felt very sheepish uh, uh, the that I had been way too forward and, and possibly you know uh, prevented. Uh, her well, from it going worked out. for you. But it, it worked. It, it worked. It worked. So it was embarrassing in the moment, is I guess the, <laughs> the the way I would put it. All right, just a couple more unique talent nobody knows about. I uh, I don't know that nobody knows about it, but I'm I'm just I'm a very good cook. I I cook for oh. everybody in my in my family and and do typically Thanksgiving dinner and stuff like that. And I'm uh, playing well, I didn't the menu know that. now, and so um, yeah. So, but that's uh, uh, food. It is. A talent. I mean, I just. Because I like it, it, to eat, it but I'm not very good at making it. I wasn't very good until a few years ago when I just decided to like really focus on it. Um, and I, I reached my family is all talented in different respects, you know, art or music or things like that. And I'm not as talented in that uh, in those spaces. I, I can do a little bit dabble, but I decided, you know what, I, I'm going to pursue this and, and learn it. And uh and it really is, uh, it's its very rewarding. And, and now it's kind of a, a thing that I, I enjoy doing, even though it can be stressful when there's a lot of family around. So Good, 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 good. All right. Well, sometime I hope to be with you in person and I'll, I'll take you up on the Absolutely. offer to go ahead and make something for us to eat. That would be great. <laughs> of course. Uh, all right. Last big question, which has to do with a lot with your new chef skills that you evidently <laughs> have, but pineapple on pizza, yes or no? Oh, I'm I'm totally fine with pineapple on pizza. Oh, I Ben, you were on a roll. Judges I'm, do I'm, not like this answer. <laughs> uh, but but I'm also someone who thinks that toppings generally on pizza are overrated. Like I, I think actually, you know, the ideal form of pizza is is just 
you know, a nice cheese pizza or at most pepperoni. So once you just get out of that vein, I think of it as being do whatever you want with the pie, because, uh, you know, it doesn't it's it's no longer kind of the ideal form of pizza. I'm very much a a cheese or cheese and pepperoni guy. And I even got a little I got one of those nice wood pellet uh, uh, pizza ovens uh this uh, this year to oh, to make little individual pizzas yeah. for people yeah we and, have a pizza um, oven out back outside and it, it's yeah oh i love pizza i could live on yeah. pizza and mexican food i tell you that would give hey i, I just think fly. i think that's a great i think that is a great selection uh and <laughs> and uh and i i strongly recommend it um personally you know pineapple is not typically in my order but uh but i just don't have the judgment that some some people judge it and and view it as being some kind of of you know a, a a terrible offense sin? to the Almighty, a sin <laughs> that one must answer for. Yeah, that's uh, that, before, that's me. before the pizza gods at the end that's, of time. That, that's me. I, <laughs> and I'm not bashful in asking everybody because it tells me a lot. So, <laughs> okay, well, uh, you know, I'll I will in, in their defense. I mean, doesn't that have all the food groups on it? If you get a nice Hawaiian pizza, I think it. I think it actually does. So I, I don't uh, order a pizza to maintain <laughs> the balance of my diet. <laughs> you don't use the government pyramid as your guide to, uh, <laughs> to no, the way that we ought to live. I Jason. just don't want a wet piece of fruit sitting on my <laughs> nice pepperonis. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, I Ben Dominich. <laughs> thank you so much for joining us on the Jason in the House podcast, and uh, thank you for the time and uh, getting to know you better. Appreciate it. Great to be with you, Jason. Again, I can't thank uh, Ben Dominich enough for joining us, having a good, candid conversation uh, about politics in America and uh, and his background. So thank you so much for listening to the Jason in the House podcast. I hope you're able to review it, give it a few stars, subscribe to it. You can check out more podcasts over at the Fox News Podcast Network at uh, foxnewspodcast.com. Foxnewspodcast.com. There's a whole array of them, the good ones, including Ben Dominich's And uh, I hope you get a chance to listen to that as well. We'll be back with more next week. I'm Jason Chaffetz, and this has been Jason in the House. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts.